0: Welcome to the Nutritional Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Kyla Chanel. I'm a performance nutritionist, specializing in sex differences in sport. I work with athletes from all over the world through my online private practice in sports nutrition programs. We here at Nutritional Revolution are here to cut through the BS promoted in the media and give you the science, literally straight from the research articles, as well as share client success stories and experiences around nutrition and racing. Please keep in mind this podcast is created strictly for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis and treatment if you like what you hear today we would love for you to subscribe and share are you a plant-based athlete who struggles to find delicious meals that will actually fuel your body for your sport Navigating food with dietary restrictions can be difficult, and it can be even harder if you're an athlete who requires certain meals to help you perform at your best. Here at Nutritional Revolution, we get it. We've worked with many clients who are high-performing athletes who also have unique dietary restrictions. That's why we made our Vegan Athlete Meal Plan. Our Vegan Athlete Meal Plan includes breakfast, lunch, and dinner as well as 2 snacks per day for a week's duration. We've also included detailed macronutrient and micronutrient breakdowns. So you know exactly what you're putting in your body. Oh, and we also include a grocery list so that you can easily get all the ingredients you need at the store in one trip, hassle-free. So to get your hands on our vegan athlete meal plan, click the link in our show notes and use the code new NR10 to save 10% off. That's new NR10 to save 10% off our vegan athlete meal plan. Hey, did you know as a new customer of Nutritional Revolution, you can save 10% off any of our recipe books, meal plans, guides, or programs when you use the code NEWNR10, that's N-E-W-N-R-10, to save 10% off your first order as a new customer. And our most popular meal plan is actually our menopause support meal plan. And we have this in a omnivore style as well as a plant-based style. And this is specifically Targeted to address menopausal concerns such as weight gain, uh, managing bone health, your hot flashes, and it's going to focus on including specific nutrients like calcium and magnesium for your bones, protein to support a healthy weight, and especially phytoestrogens to help manage those hot flashes. This is broken down in a seven day meal plan that includes three main meals and two snacks. So it's got your whole week covered. We give you a grocery list that nutrition breakdown, and this is going to be free of dairy, gluten, processed sugars, and is low glycemic. So if you guys want to take advantage of that, check the link in the show notes and use the code NEWNR10 to save 10% off your first order. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Nutritional Revolution podcast. We have Keely Henning, Henninger here with you, with us today, um, silent G there. I wanted to say the G. Um, she is a professional trail runner and was a member of Team USA, holding the USA 50-mile national champion title. And she's a scientist with her honors degree in biology and neuroscience, conducting research on female athlete health, nutrition needs, performance, and relative energy deficiency in sport. All things we love talking about, learning about. So thank you so much for joining us today, Keely yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have a chat with you guys. So as most of our guests know and listeners, um, we do do two two truths and a lie. So before people learn too much about you, we will start right off the bat with that. So share your two truths in the lie with us. Okay,
1: so first one is that last year, I ski toured off the top of Mount Hood. Okay. Um, the second one is that I have a running, dog that is cross-eyed. Oh, cool. And the third one is I was a thousand point scorer on my high school basketball team.
0: Oh my goodness. Okay. (laughs) So Mia and I are going to guess, but don't tell us the answer. We'll reveal it at the end. Um, I, I have known dogs that have been cross-eyed. So I, I feel like that could absolutely be true. Um, ski touring off Mount hood, I was not a great basketball player. So part of me wants to think that the thousand points was not, uh, was, might be the lie, but, um, and if not, that's pretty incredible. So I'm going to go with the number three. What do you think, Nia?
1: Um, I was also going to go with number three because I'm awful at basketball. So for the same
0: reason. (laughs) Okay. We will, we might learn the answer to that as we go um, and learn more about Keeley, but why don't we dive into Keeley? How did you get into, or what interested you in um, biology and neuroscience and then going into the field of research? Sure. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, since I was a little girl, I wanted to be
1: a physician. So I feel like I was kind of pushed into the path of like biology or some sort of applied science. And so, yeah. um, yeah, I kind of chose biology neuroscience because going into undergrad, I was of the, under the impression that the most prestigious field of medicine was being a neurosurgeon. Mm. And, um, I just wasn't, I wasn't kind of guided in a way that would have gotten me to med school in a very healthy way. Mm. And luckily, um, I kind of backed off the med school dreams for a little bit while I was figuring out my ways after school and and taking on running and stuff. But I actually found sports science and applied exercise physiology after my undergrad. So I didn't even know you could major in, you know, Mm -hmm. exercise science or biomechanics or anything like that. And so I moved to Colorado to start running um, and was introduced to Dr. Roger Crom, who is like one of the OGs of biomechanics and applied biomechanics. And Got to do a study with him studying the energetics associated with running and hiking uphill. Um, And I thought that was really, really cool and ended up getting a job with Nike um, Mm. doing kind of like applied science and engineering initially. So I was looking at a lot of things like, you know, um, running pacing algorithms and different algorithms to kind of build coaching plans off of.
0: So it's kind of like
1: applying things to, you know, my runner self and also kind of getting a little bit of science, Mm -hmm. but I definitely missed working with people. And like at my core, I know, or I knew I would still go back towards medicine eventually. I just, Mm -hmm. I love working with people so much. So I actually started doing some like internships in applied physiology at Nike, Mm -hmm. doing some of the work with um, the 4% shoe and running economy. And then ended up working in the research lab there as an applied physiologist for, a little over four years, um, okay. studying everything from applied breast biomechanics. So how mm. breast movement for women impacts, you know, everything from VO2 max to running economy and running mechanics, wow. which was really interesting. I never thought I'd be an expert in breasts and uh, yeah. sports bras, but I did that for a two solid two years and it was really, really interesting. And you meet that a is. lot of women and a lot of women are very passionate about sports bras. Um, and then I luckily got to kind of dabble in everything. I did some longitudinal studies in injury Um, And then my final year there, I got to do a full year on hormones and how hormones impact training and how they impact like apparel preferences and how those hormones may change across the cycle and how those changes might impact things like running economy and stuff like that. And so I got to kind of dabble in a lot of things, um, but at my core, I still really wanted to go back and pursue medicine. And so I ended up leaving that job, um, about a year ago and getting ready to go back to med school. I took on kind of like a side project with, with a, um, PhD up in Washington. And right Mm -hmm. now we're doing a bunch of studies around, um, relative energy deficiency in females, um, related to trail running nutrition, um, kind of like carbohydrate intake, and then how that is related to things like disordered eating, exercise Mm -hmm. dependence and training volume. And I do that with Dr. Kelly Pritchett, who is like, kind of a pro in that space. So she's yeah. done a ton of research in that realm. And so it's been really cool to work alongside her because like my expertise is not in nutrition, but mm. um, working with her to kind of apply the different avenues of physiology, nutrition, and
0: all of those things together has been really fun. That's a very cool background <laughs> and all the different, I, like I, who knew like to the, just all the different research with even Mm -hmm. sports bra stuff. I mean, it's pretty, yeah, really fascinating. You mentioned hormones. I know this wasn't our talking points, but it's got me thinking the hormones in relation, you know, fluctuating through the cycle. And did, were you saying that it could alter one's decision in the type of clothing or like sports bra they're choosing? Mm -hmm.
1: Wow. Yeah. Um, I obviously can't go into crazy detail, but yeah, we found that during the cycle, there were different preferences for different types of sports bras and different types of, you know, thermoregulatory apparel. And so, uh, you know, thinking about it critically, that doesn't shock me too much because mm-hmm. you do have pretty big swings in body core temperature during mm-hmm. the, the phases of your cycle. And one thing that I've noticed that I do that, that was also seen was that like, you know, during the phase where you are really high hormone, where mm-hmm. your body temp is elevated, um, you don't feel, you feel cold, nor like normal, during mm-hmm. the day, but you heat up a lot higher, hotter. And so I tend to overdress and get a lot hotter during my mm-hmm. runs than mm-hmm. like maybe during the lower hormone phase. And, and that was like relatively consistent with some athletes where they were choosing to wear a lot heavier clothing during those phases, but like then would rate them afterwards as being
0: too hot. Ah, interesting. Yeah, that, that is very interesting. And you mm-hmm. mentioned... Some um, stuff with shoes as well, kind of engineering of the shoe and efficiency, Mm -hmm. I think, with running, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So that's like around, well, one of the first projects I did was the 4%. So the Nike 4% shoe that basically improved running economy 4%. We did all those testings in-house mm-hmm. as well as outside outsource them. So, you know, we've done tests on every single prototype of the four percent to five percent to six percent shoe. So wow. And, um wow. all of those were super cool. And then, you know, trying to tie in running economy to like things like breast motion or hormonal phase. Obviously a lot more sticky and hairy, but like mm-hmm. also very interesting and and very um individualized.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Yeah, that is very interesting. And what a neat uh background to have it kind of going into the research that you're going into now too. Do you, Mm -hmm. did you find you applied a lot of the stuff you were learning to your own running at all? (laughs) Um, Totally. I think, you know,
1: getting to see some of Kipchoge's training Mm. um, and how like purposeful a lot of it was had me questioning a lot of my, you know, like easy runs. Are they easy enough? Are they too long? Mm. Was like, was hitting this arbitrary mileage number while working a nine to five, like, was it necessary? So I was just seeing a lot more like purposeful training where all the runs had a purpose instead of, you know, filling your mileage calendar with just a bunch of junk. Yeah. Um, and I think that actually helped me a lot because when you do work full time, it's really hard to hold high mileage. Heck I'm, I'm now basically full-time running and I still think it's hard to hold high mileage. So yeah.
0: yeah, Wow. Um,
1: yeah. That, and then, um, a lot with the menstrual cycle, I'd say I never really cared about mine for the first like three or four years of my career. I actually kind of loved that I didn't have it for most Mm of it. Mm -hmm. Um, even though that was like a different underlying issue. Um, I would say as I started to get more interested in training and then female hormones, I definitely started to track my own Mm. and pay more attention to how mine impacted my training. And then
0: kind of do that with
1: some people that I help with
0: coaching as well. That's awesome. Yeah, that is, I think, I mean, we're seeing more and more research in that area, which is just, it's always fascinating to see. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, yeah, the individual pieces seems to just reiterate itself yeah. through, through the papers. Um, so with yeah. the research you're doing now, tell us well, if you can tell us a little bit about that. I know you said it's ultra runners and red S. Mm-hmm. Um, have you guys started the study yet? Or are you assessing any data yeah, yet? So or?
1: We, we, we set the study out like last June Mm -hmm. So we, we got all the responses back end of summer. And so we're actually submitting our first paper for journal review like this week. So, um, yeah, we might have to have me and Dr. Pritchett back to talk about all the studies in really high detail, but like, yeah, I can totally tease it, um, right now. So we conducted a survey that we ended up getting over 3000 responses to, which is amazing for a survey.
0: Um,
1: and the first paper is just focusing on the respondents aged 18 to 40. Mm. And that was still 2200. So wow. we ended up getting like over a thousand of masters athletes and then to over 2000 of normal or, or just like, you know, non-masters athletes, even mm-hmm. though most 40 year olds are absolute crushers. So I don't know why yeah. that's off the, the threshold, <laughs> but that's where all the surveys or the, you know, clinical scales kind of end at 40 for women. Cause they don't mm-hmm. want to deal with those hormonal fluctuations. Um, but the first survey, um, the, the survey in general basically looked to study, um, fueling habits. So how many carbohydrates per hour is consumed during like training runs and and races of different lengths. So we Mm -hmm. chose kind of the ACSM, um, standardized distances. So it'd be like under two and a half hours and greater than two and a half Mm -hmm. hours and utilize those carbohydrate recommendations to kind of bucket everyone into, Mm -hmm. you know, if they're meeting them or not. Mm -hmm. And then we wanted to compare those results to things like low energy availability based off the leaf cue, disordered Mm. eating based off the DESA six and exercise dependence based off exercise pen scale. Mm -hmm. And just see if there was like this nice coalition of those four facets, because I mean, if you've been in sport for as long as I have, like everyone I meet is displaying at least two of those four things. So it's like, um, and for me, like, and for Kelly, we work a lot with ultra endurance athletes and Mm you know, fueling in our sport is even more important than fueling in other sports. And so because the prevalence of low energy availability and disordered eating is relatively high for the most part in endurance athletes, we wanted to see if there was any correlation to fueling practices. And Mm -hmm. then if there were to be able to take that data and at least like use it to start discussions with Mm -hmm. other research units and also like other fueling nutrition companies to be like, Hey, you know, your gel says to eat one an hour and that's not even close to the fueling recommendation. And like a lot of people aren't fueling properly and it is showing correlation to these detrimental health impacts. So like maybe we change our marketing or maybe we do a little bit of a showcase of how important fueling is. So we're giving that knowledge to the actual consumer instead of just, you know, putting something on there, hoping them to do their own research and know how to fuel. That's just unrealistic, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that that'll be, that's really fascinating and will be really informative. Do you, with the questionnaire at all, out of curiosity, did you, um, were there any questions regarding like why someone might not be eating more due to GI issues or mm-hmm. fear of GI issues or that kind of stuff?
1: Yep. Yep. So we did cover, um, if you chose to not consume carbohydrates, what were some of those most common reasons you didn't choose, we had some questions that are going to be in a different paper, looking mm-hmm. more at mental side of fueling. So it was like, do you choose to fuel on your easy days? Um, do you purposefully cut calories to like change your mm-hmm. body mass? Mm-hmm. Um, do you follow a specific diet? Do you cut out certain foods? Like those kind of things were in us, were part of it as well. It was a very massive survey, yeah. but obviously those things are all just they they made the story too complicated, and so <laughs> they'll be kind of like paper number three.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, that'll be. I'm excited.
1: I'm excited for yeah, you. <laughs> that's gonna it's be fun. It's status. definitely though like a reminder of the vigors of of uh, getting publications ready for journal because mm. it's very different than Nike. Because at Nike, um, only the people at a really really high level can publish. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, like you know, I wasn't there for that long, and I was never able to publish. Mm-hmm. And you, that's five. No, that's six and a half years of of not publishing, you know, where I'd I'd kind of forgotten how nuanced it was from my, my earlier days. And so it's been a good reminder that like, wow, this takes a while. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, kudos to you guys for putting in the work on that. That's, um, that's going to give us, you know, give the world some really good information, I'm sure for the ultra running community. Um, So kind of with this research field, you, you mentioned, you had not had a cycle for a period of time, but did you ever struggle with like fueling or like what were some of the woes you went through as you kind of progressed in your running career?
1: Yeah. So I'd say I started off probably, you know, telltale signs of all things around body, dis- body dissatisfaction mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. disordered eating thoughts. Mm-hmm. I started running and this might give a, no, I won't say anything. I started running after I dislocated both shoulders, played basketball.
0: Oh shoot. Um, and so
1: I wasn't able to play basketball in college and so I started running because uh, I just didn't have anything else to do and mm-hmm. so I was so used to having a sport all the time mm-hmm. that you know I just picked up running literally just the same four mile loop every day but it's such a different sport than playing basketball and soccer full-time that like yeah. your body changes really quickly especially when you're 17 18 right mm-hmm. so um I kind of got obsessed with like The comments that you would get from someone who'd be like, wow, you're way too thin now. Mm. And I'd be like, okay, cool. This Mm. is something I can control. Like I couldn't control my shoulders.
0: Mm. I can
1: control this. So I kind of went down a a, a pretty poor slope because also at the time, you know, I went to university and a lot of the girls there running cross country or running club cross country were advocating for the loss of the menstrual cycle and just like really crushing um, your training. And so it was a very skewed mentality. Yeah. That only fed my, you know, desire to train harder because I'm like, oh well, I still get my period. So maybe I have to train harder so that I mm-hmm. don't get it to be more like those girls. And so yeah, for like all through college, I feel like I definitely battled ups and downs with the fueling exercise balance where, you know, I was kind of all over the place. Yeah. Um, and I would say it was it slowly, slowly, slowly got better for the next four years of my running career, but mm-hmm. still was just never right. You know, I still was purposefully under fueling and purposely making the runs harder, even though mm-hmm. you know trail running, ultra running, already hard enough. We don't need mm-hmm. to make it harder. Yeah. Um, and I'd say like it took some like nasty blood tests where I was like, wow, mm-hmm. I am really unhealthy and some pretty frank conversations with my physician to mm. start to discuss stuff with a nutritionist, start to implement new things, mm-hmm. slowly start to change. Mm. Um, but again, like it doesn't happen that quickly. And for yeah. me, unfortunately, like I was changing my fueling, I think in a very positive way, but I still was running a lot. And I think mm. just from five to six years of no menstrual cycle and poorly treating my body, like my bones were just not super stoked. And so oh,
0: shoot.
1: I got a huge big bone stress fracture in 2019, be- beginning mm-hmm. of 2019. And kind of, I'd say I was trending to start doing changes. I think mm-hmm. that really accelerated them. Yeah. But I was talking to Lauren Fleshman the other day. We luckily got her on our podcast to interview her about her book. And she said something along the lines of like, I want to be the person that says my journey was really linear out of that hole, but like it wasn't. Yeah. And, and neither was mine. It's like, you get the writing on the wall, you have this giant big bone stress fracture. And I feel like you take some steps forward, but then it's so easy to find yourself two steps backward all of a sudden. And you're like, how did I get here? And so I feel like I'm pretty close to being on hundred percent out of that journey, but it's still like, you always have to keep yourself in check and mm-hmm. kind of reevaluate your relationship with, with running and fueling and, and be, be aware that, you know, there are little triggers that can happen, whether it's an injury or a poor race or something that can kind of, you know, bring back those feelings of like needing of control or something like oh, that.
0: Yeah. Did you seek out like any help from like a therapist or psychologist or anything like that? I
1: didn't know. I, um, I feel like I grew up in a culture where therapy was like kind of chastised. And so I never really sought it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you kind of like to think you're still in control, even though Mm. you're completely out of control. Um, I mean, now I see a therapist now, but I feel like I'm more, you know, okay with seeing one Mm -hmm. and, maybe more confident in how good it's for me and also confident in myself. So I'm not as like ashamed of going, Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, I didn't. And I really wish that I would have been in a mental state to be able to seek Mm. one,
0: but I don't Mm -hmm. think I was. Yeah. I think maybe too. I mean, from my own personal experience going into a field of science is like when there's something going on with the body, maybe you did this too. It's like, you just like start hitting PubMed and doing like all the research and trying to find like that thing Mm to yeah so, uh do it yourself, kind of oh
1: totally, and I think you can even totally trick yourself right into thinking you're fine, yeah <laughs> like I think it took a couple blood tests and a frank conversation with some nutritionists and doctors for me to actually like own up to what was going on
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah. otherwise, it's easy to just keep pushing it aside, right? you're young, you're resilient, if you mm-hmm. feel like crap, but you're fine, you know. Yeah. Yeah, And so it's really easy to just ignore it, even though the writing's on the wall.
0: Yeah. So some of the symptoms you noticed that kind of caused you to take action, you had your fracture, there was a loss of menstrual mm-hmm. cycle. You so said you felt like crap. Was there anything else that you noticed going on or maybe um, the listeners should pay attention to that they might be? Yeah. Expecting? I mean,
1: I, I feel like I would wake up 95% of the time and feel awful and mm. not want to go run. Okay, and yeah. I think that's okay if you feel that way once a week, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe once every other week. Yeah. it's like sometimes you just wake up, you don't want to go run. It's cold, it's raining, whatever. That's normal. yeah. If you wake up almost every day and you feel like you need to go back to sleep for an entire day, and yeah. you don't want to run. Like that's your body telling you, like you're doing a little bit too much. Um, and I would also be just really irritable and not prioritize seeing other people. I think. Mm. Like I was just unwilling to stop thinking about myself. Mm-hmm. So everything was very internalized. And like that kind of stress just made me not have the capacity to like be as engaged with other people or like have the capacity to to go do those kind of things. Yeah. And so noticing yourself like withdrawal almost and that I feel like looking back was a big sign for me because I love people. I love interacting with people. And so yeah. the fact that you're like living like a little hermit for a while because you're just so stressed and just all consumed by these thoughts of yourself. And Mm -hmm. it's just, it's not a good thing. Um, And then I'd say also um, the final thing I noticed was, well, this was kind of like a blood test thing, but also something that I may or may not have like freaked myself out for. But um, I noticed in my blood test that like my thyroid was really low. My, Mm. my my cortisol was super high and then my glucose was really high.
0: Mm. So my
1: body was just like not functioning well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for a while I thought I had hypothyroidism. Then I thought I was going to be diabetic. Like my doctor was all over the place. They had no clue what's going on. And so I feel like my body just wasn't feeling functionally normal. Like I would have something that had sugar in it. And sometimes I'd feel fine. And sometimes I would feel so wonky. It was like just a bunch of ups and downs. And I think that's just from chronic, like overtraining and high cortisol, right? Like your body's just like, what is going on?
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: yeah, It was just not that pleasant, but you don't notice until you're out of it. Right. Right. And so now I feel like if I have a day or two of like really high stress, I'll feel that a very glimpse of like feeling that way. Mm -hmm. And I'll be like, oh my gosh, I lived like this for years. Like I'm fine. This is a day. Yeah. Yeah. Just chill for a little bit, but it's like very, it's horrible. You're like, wow, I I lived a lot of my life that way. And that is really sad.
0: Yeah. Shoot. Yeah. I I totally recognize what you're saying too. And there's that situation where you, you think you're okay and you don't realize how maybe like bad, you're feeling until you get out of that situation. And exactly. uh, yeah, I had, I had a client and she, we did her labs and her ferritin was at a seven, um, which is very low for our listeners. Um, and she's like, I feel great. I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm yeah. Like, you're like, well,
1: how would you feel if your ferritin was a 30? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> which I'm isn't like, even that good, but at least. Right. <laughs> So Yeah. My ferritin also never would go above 12 or 11. Mm, wow. And I was like adamantly vegan for mm-hmm. not great reasons. And yeah. so again, when I had those consistent bad blood tests and I just felt like crap all the time, I finally like started eating meat again, which I don't mm-hmm. advocate. Everyone has to go eat meat. I don't yeah. think that's the case, but I think that's works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but my ferritin after that for like six months, went from always 11 or 12, regardless of how much iron I took to like 45 or 50. I can't remember which number. Yeah. Um, and I felt amazing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it is interesting. I've seen that with a, a handful of clients. The supplemental iron just mm-hmm. doesn't move the needle, um, yeah. interestingly enough. So mm-hmm.
1: it's also yeah. like, I, I feel like my, me and Kelly had this talk the other day It would be a really hard study to conduct, but if you have any ideas, feel free to to throw them out there. (laughs) Um, It would be really cool to see how, you know, different energy states as Mm -hmm. well as different exercise regimens paired with like fueling and timing impact iron absorption.
0: Yeah. Because I feel
1: like we kind of know the response of like hypsidine on it, but we Mm -hmm. don't really know how chronic energy to... uh, Chronically low energy availability would impact it, right? And all of these other things that may or may not impact absorption. Um, mm-hmm. I think that would be super interesting.
0: Yeah, that would be very interesting. It would be very interesting to see. <laughs> For our listeners, it's a it's a molecule in the body, in the stomach, or um, absorption process through the digestive system that interferes with the absorption of iron and can be elevated from exercise. And I, from my understanding, and like picturing the graph from the PubMed article, it, it continues to increase over several hours post-exercise. So that interference is significantly greater. I want to say for up to six hours post-exercise, if I recall correctly, um, which makes me think too, if it's elevated from a state of stress to your point of checking in on different states of energy availability. If one is in a very low state of uh, energy availability, thus inducing a state of stress, is there a possibility of potentially higher hepcidin? So that's a theory. (laughs) That would would be interesting to see. Yeah. And
1: it's it's a liver derived hormone. So it um, will degrade like the ferritin transport. Mm. And so my question as well is like, after chronic ultra endurance exercise that may or may not require your liver to be kind of overworking, mm-hmm.
0: would that make it even worse? And for how long? Mm. Um, I love, a I love a good science brainstorm session. <laughs> um, yeah. So fascinating. So kind of um, back to your kind of journey through that progression, you mentioned kind of, some of the like making some changes, what were those changes from like an energy perspective? Did you like start swapping things in for other foods or, I mean, you mentioned the meat, but um, Mm -hmm. and then fueling wise, were you changing anything there with your runs? Yeah. So I'd say,
1: first of all, in regards to everyday energy intake. So, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, whatever that may mean. Mm-hmm. I started making myself eat breakfast. I mm-hmm. never used to have breakfast before mm-hmm. running. So then most of the time, what that would look like would be, you know, you eat dinner at six or seven, mm-hmm. you wake up and you run, and then I'm r- rushing to work. And the next thing you know, it's it's noon
0: yeah, and
1: you would ran 13, 14 miles and not had anything to eat. Right. Um, so my first one was to just Breakfast that I liked for me it was like overnight oats with protein and Mm -hmm. just make myself eat it every single day regardless if I ate it or if I ran at six or if I ran at eight like it was just must have it before it was just a way for me to make sure I did it yeah Um, and then always having like fats and proteins in lunch and Mm -hmm. fats and more more protein and more fats in dinner because. I realized I would just like grab whatever was easy. And typically when you're in that starvation state, your body is craving carbohydrates because yeah. it's in starvation mode. And that's probably not the best energy choice for you mm-hmm. because you burn them so quickly and it mm-hmm. almost like further exacerbates your hunger response because you're just mm-hmm. like, okay, now more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that highly caloric. And so for me, it was like really stressing more fats and proteins, more like smaller meals in the middle of the day, not just three meals. Um, And then really emphasizing like more protein and fats with the carbohydrates at dinner as well.
0: That's awesome.
1: Um, Yeah. And then the second part of that was definitely trying to increase fueling during long runs, because I think I used to pride myself on finishing a long run with the least amount of fuel possible. You know, it was like this badge of honor to be like, oh my gosh, I did it. Mm -hmm. And while that's cool, it's not helpful to training. It's not helpful to you know, adaptation to training, your body's not able to recover from those miles. And there's also the delayed impact on stress hormones after not fueling for that long. Yeah. So for me, it was like, okay, if I'm running for more than two hours, I better better bring fuel with me. And it's now a goal of trying to like eat as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Instead of like how little can I eat to get done? It's like, how much can I eat to feel fine when I'm done? Yeah. And so that was kind of my mental shift. And again, it did not happen linearly those were just the goals that slowly started to become habits and eventually yeah. now are like how i function but it mm-hmm. took a while
0: yeah i think that's a great point there too i mean a lot of habit change takes slow changes and consistency over time right no, we don't expect somebody to overnight add an extra 60 grams of carbs to per hour mm-hmm. to their training session that would totally probably deter nope. them from <clears throat> fueling again in the future. 100% <laughs>
1: but i have one athlete who's like hey I ran this time with 20 grams an hour. And I was like, cool, I bet we can get you to 35 to 40. And then maybe in a year you could get to 60. And like, what could you do then? Right. But like, yeah, starting somewhere that's achievable. It's like, okay, I'm used to one gel an hour. Can we make that one and a half? Can we Mm -hmm. make that two? Not like, can we make that three or four? That's a lot of a change and like their gut might not handle it. Yeah. Um, So it's like, yeah,
0: thinking about that. It's key. Yeah. slow progressions. So, yeah. I think mm-hmm. that's, that's smart. Um, with kind of the increased fueling during your sessions, was there any noticeable changes in like your daily energy after the run, like later in the day when you fueled properly before and during? Oh yeah, totally. I'd say that typically
1: my day was like relatively over once I finished a really long run, if I didn't fuel, mm-hmm. cause you're just like, so out of it afterwards. Yeah. Um, and I'd say now, I can go about a normal day. Like I don't have to be a zombie. I can be done with my run, have a normal lunch and feel pretty normal. Like my legs aren't tired, like runs where I fuel really, really well. I can run. Like I've ran some solid efforts where I've fueled at least 45 grams of carbs an hour, if not 60. Mm -hmm. And I can run the next day. I don't have nearly as much muscle fatigue. I finish the run feeling like in high spirits. I don't hit as many loads during the run, which is super common. I feel like everyone loves to be like, Oh my God, Kelly, you crushed that run. Like you won, you must've felt good the whole time. It's like, no, (laughs) even when you're fueling really well, you do have down moments, you know, like you're running forever, but if you do fuel well, you have a lot less.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Do you have a fueling routine? Do you try and get something in you every 20 minutes or what does that look like for you?
1: Yeah. I would say that's what I, that's what I typically shoot for is like, (laughs) If I'm doing a high, a relatively high intensity long race, so like 50k, 50 mile where mm-hmm. you're running pretty fast the whole mm-hmm. time, that's where I really try to do the three gels an hour, mm-hmm. which would be about one every 20. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm doing something a little low in- lower intensity, then it's closer to two an hour, maybe two and a half. So mm-hmm. it'd be like half a pack of goo chews or something on mm-hmm. top of the gels. Um, but yeah, I always try to do at least like 20 minutes or every 30 minutes,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, where it gets a little tricky is if you like the liquid calories, which is what I normally mm. do now this time of year when it's so cold. Cause I feel oh, like yeah. it's hard to kind of eat with your hands. Yeah. Um, that's harder to monitor because you're like, okay, I know these bottles have this much, but how do you distribute that across the time? It's a little tricky. Right. So I still do try to have something concrete that it's easier to count. So you still yeah. have something. Yeah, Um, But yeah, I think a timer, super easy. And then I used to be really proud of myself if I like didn't fuel the last hour, right? You're like, Mm -hmm. oh, I have an hour left. I'm fine. But, you know, if you read any of the papers in triathlon that talk about the like negative implications of fasting during exercise, Mm -hmm. even the like fasting experiments where they wanted cyclists to quote unquote fast for some of their ride none of the coaches advocated for fasting in the last like two hours. They were all like, no, no, 60 to 90 carbohydrates or grams of carbohydrates an hour in the last two hours. Even if you fasted, quote unquote, for 20 grams to 40 grams in the first four hours, Mm -hmm. because the negative impacts of like not fueling in those final hours, when your body needs that extra glycogen in those muscles to start repairing them when you're done, um, that shocked me and has now changed my whole like outlook on fueling. And lets me swallow my pride a little bit more when I'm getting close to the end of a run. And like, oh, I don't need to fuel. I have five miles left. It's like, no, just have one more gel. It doesn't matter. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. What you mentioned liquid fuel. What's your go-to brand? We're not sponsored by anybody. So you can say. Okay. <laughs> I work with,
1: I love goo Rockane.
0: Okay. So yeah.
1: 60 grams or 80 grams per serving.
0: Okay. Yeah. Oh, so it's pretty
1: highly caloric, which is nice.
0: That's awesome. Have yeah. you, out of curiosity, ever done any like sweat testing to figure out? No, no, no. No, I
1: would love to. I yeah. I was about to do it last year before Western States, but mm-hmm. then I just I travel a lot around before because I'm doing a yeah. lot of training in different areas. It just didn't work out.
0: Yeah, yeah. But that would be really cool. Yeah, the sweat world seems like it's just like blowing up, and I we had um, oh goodness, Nia, help me with the name.
1: Dr. Alan McCoven. Yes.
0: We had Dr. Alan <laughs> McCubbin on, um, and he was diving into a lot of the sweat testing tools and basically mm-hmm. saying that w- we can get the data, but we don't have any research to suggest now what to do with the information <laughs> basically. Right. So it's like, it might mm-hmm. tell you that you're losing a thousand know, milligrams of sodium over the hour, but we don't know mm-hmm.
1: how much actually
0: needs to be replaced. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like how much, what is the
1: minimum viable like dosage of, of yeah. replacing that because like what can you even absorb? What is needed? Like does your body actually lose yeah, it's a tough question because it it's is. Like, you just need it to maintain the balance. Yeah. So that you don't have like hyponatremia or something. But yeah. Yeah, how much is that is excess? And then how much salt do someone eat in their diet? That always impacts how much sweat you salt you'll sweat out. Yeah. Like that's always tricky because I think a lot of people like to pump salt tabs or like, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. electrolyte drinks the day or two before a big race. Yeah. But then they might see, or big runs even, they might see tons of sweat on themselves and be like, oh my gosh, I need to take like five salt tabs when it's like, well, no, you just were kind of overdosed on salt. So (laughs) (laughs) you might not need five.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I, I, uh, I have had clients too, where they'll go to like altitude and all of a sudden like Mm -hmm. see white on their kit when they didn't see it down at sea level. And it's like, well, air's a lot drier up there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Very, yeah, very cool. So I definitely appreciate you sharing your journey with your experience and how you've evolved um, your nutrition and fueling. I think that's really helpful. And I think you also brought up a really great point that I just like to reiterate is like the continued fueling towards the end of your session. I think you like, I think that's really important for our listeners to hear for that. Like you mentioned the purposes of starting that recovery process. So don't stop fueling too early, um, for our listeners. So what's kind of on, I know you mentioned the study, what's kind of next up for, for you personally with the racing racing, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned med school study kind of what's coming down the pipeline mm-hmm. for you.
1: Yeah. I have a very busy, uh, winter spring. So, um we're yeah we're wrapping up our study so we we have a couple papers kind of in the works and then we have mm-hmm. the one we're submitting <clears throat> and then i'm taking the mcat at the end of march so basically awesome. this next like 2 month section um i'm just basically studying wow um and then i'm racing black canyon 100k next that is in mid february and that is a 100 kilometer race that goes wow. from a place called Meyer in Arizona. It's mm-hmm. about an hour, and 45 minutes North of Phoenix and ends in black Canyon city, which is mm-hmm. about 45 minutes North of Phoenix.
0: Okay.
1: Um, on really beautiful net downhill trail Oh, nice. and it's a qualifier for Western States because it's okay. a golden ticket race. So the top mm-hmm. two men and women will get golden tickets to Western States, which is a guaranteed entry. Nice. So that is the a goal. The B mm-hmm. goal would be to just have another, like successful race under my belt and then try again maybe in a different race this year Mm -hmm. um just because this last year I dropped out of western states because of I tore my ankle so oh shoot um yeah so it'll be good to have a nice like confidence booster even if it's not a golden ticket but that's the main goal and then hopefully western states um, and awesome. then kind of go from there.
0: Yeah, that's great. And for our listeners, I think some of them likely know what Western States is, but mm-hmm. for maybe our newbies to running, could yeah. you explain Western States and how all that sure. works? So Western States is a 100 mile trail race that originated from
1: a horse route that went from the Tahoe area and ended in Auburn, California. So it's a point to point route that yeah, was originated because people rode horses along it. Um, through California. And it's a beautiful point to point race. It net descends. So it's a torch. It's a scorcher on the quads because you're Mm -hmm. running a lot of downhill. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's notoriously very hot because there's, um, it starts in Tahoe at nine or 6,000 feet climbs up to 9,000 feet, but then Mm -hmm. it descends down into these canyons close to sea level, typically during the heat of the day. And it's in the the end of June. So it's typically like in the hundred degrees Fahrenheit, um, in those canyons and the Western state's, one hundred is like I'd say like the Super Bowl of North America for trail running. It's probably the most prestigious race in in the U.S. at least um, for yeah. trail runners. So it's a cool one. I don't think I am a big one hundred mile race fan, but mm. I definitely am a big Western States fan because oh. I've ran it once now and most of it a second time, and I'm like, okay, I'm hooked to Western States. Don't know if I'm hooked to hundred miles. It's really far, but yeah, definitely Shoot. enjoy Western States. Yeah.
0: How long does something like Western States take most people or, or what's like, Um, do you know the faster times versus kind of average?
1: I ran in the 19 hours and I'd say the fastest women's times a little bit under 17. Um, and the fastest men's times closer to 15. Wow. Wow. And so pretty quick. Um, if that, to break that down for the men's time, I think I calculated it. It's like pretty close to an eight minute mile. Wow. almost 20,000 feet of climbing. So it's a oh decent God. clip. Uh, the women's course record right now is closer to like a 10 minute mile for the whole thing, which is still wow. pretty fast. Yeah. Um, and then I think the average time, like you get a, you get a cool belt buckle for going sub 1724.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I had a client who did it and when we were mapping out his nutrition, I think he's like, I think it's going to take me about 22 hours. So we got a 22 hour nutrition mm-hmm. fueling plan broken down, which, um, I think he beat that time too, which is great. But, um, yeah,
1: and then the cutoff is 30 hours, I believe. So.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. crazy. That's, and do you start, is it early in the morning or is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It starts
1: at five. So it starts okay. really early. Yeah. So you get up the escarpment, which is basically the first climb out of Tahoe when the sun is rising. Mm-hmm. So it's like the most beautiful thing you've yeah. ever seen, but uh, it starts very early. So your alarm is always for like 3, 3.30 mm-hmm. and you're like, yes. oh,
0: no. Yeah. Shoot. <laughs> but do you do even notice once you're going. Yeah. With something like that, would you still do your overnight oats or do you alter that in any way to get in more energy or... Mm, I definitely throw in more oats, but to mm. be
1: honest, I never can eat my whole breakfast before a race that early. Yeah. It's like the nerves plus how early it is. Like yeah. I'm really stoked if I get like half of it down, mm-hmm. which I feel like I do a, a good enough job fueling and I do a good enough job fueling the day before that. I don't feel like that's a negative impact on me. Mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, that's always been a challenge. I'm like, okay, come on, you can eat something. Yeah.
0: So True. maybe yeah. this year
1: I'll get to scarf the whole thing down. Awesome. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so we're getting close and I want to be mindful of your time. So we'll do our two truths and a lie reveal. So mm. we had that you ski toured up the top of Mount hood. Um, you have a running dog that's cross-eyed and you scored a thousand points on your high school basketball team. And after you mentioned the dislocated shoulders, <laughs> I watch your best from all the smashing all the hoops um so let us know which one was the lie
1: yeah no ski touring I'm not a ski tour, but uh, I feel like it's very trendy in my sport so I knew it was yeah, you. yeah. <laughs> i actually don't have ski so
0: <laughs> oh nice there you go yeah yep. um so you did score a thousand points that's very impressive mm-hmm. that is and so did were the dislocated shoulders from bump bumping into people in the court, from, or?
1: yeah I did one from playing we would always go to philly and play really really good teams that mm. were like basically recruits for like the best d1 schools across wow. the nation and i was just not that strong but i was super tall and so i would get paired up with these women who were just such ballers and like one time one just literally like went for a rebound with me so hard that it just popped it out completely and it just was stuck out for like four and a half hours because there was a snow blizzard and the ambulance got stuck and like in Pennsylvania, the jurisdiction of the EMT is that they can't pop shoulders back in and neither can oh. paramedics. And oh. so you have to take the ambulance to the hospital before they can put it back in. It was this whole thing. Um, thing. Yeah. And then the year before it had been from like a similar scenario, but not quite as intense. It was just the oh. other one. So I had a nice Goodness. slew of back-to-back shoulders. Um Yeah. Yeah, it was a bummer. But, oh, man. you know, I'm a much better runner than I ever was at basketball. I just didn't know it at the time.
0: Yeah. So, <laughs> there you go. Ended up being okay. <laughs> yeah. Did you have to get any shoulder surgeries or anything? Or did I they... did. I
1: got one on my left shoulder. And then yeah. I was going to get one on my right shoulder when I was still thinking of playing in sc- mm. at school. But then, mm. because like having back to back injuries, it's like they you get pulled your scholarship or any sort of funding really quickly Shoot. once it's double injury. Yeah. Um, and then it's kind of like a walk on situation until you reestablish yourself. Mm -hmm. I decided to put the surgery off a year and be like, okay, I'll just get it after I get home from college after the first semester. But then Mm -hmm. I found running and like running, you don't really, my shoulder never bothered me. And I just remembered how horrible the first one was. And so I Mm -hmm. just opted not to get it. And I think it gave me issues for like probably the next six years because it had gotten like this giant divot in it from being out for so long, but it doesn't really bother me anymore. There's just certain movements I can't do. Like I can't yeah. go be a spiker on the beach volleyball team, even mm-hmm. though I'd love to. That's so fun. That's just not something I can do.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shoot. Yeah. yeah. We had a friend of ours. He, uh, he initially dislocated I guess, pretty bad. And it got to the point mm-hmm. where it just got so loose. Like when he would try and open the refrigerator door, it would just mm-hmm. come out. It's the out.
1: worst pain in the world too. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, I just, it makes me. Mm.
0: Oh man. <laughs> that's brutal, the whole process that you went through the medics and Mm -hmm. state lines and all that. That's madness. I
1: know. know. And then I went into, I was an EMT for a year and a half um, as I was getting ready for med school. And I feel like I experienced those jurisdictions firsthand where a lot of like EMTs and paramedics have their hands tied a lot. And it's very interesting. And then it's even more interesting when you go to a different state, because then I moved to Colorado and I was able to Um, learn to give IVs there. And I was, I was able to do a lot as an EMT working in a hospital that I couldn't do in Pennsylvania. And so it was just, it was just very interesting.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Um, Okay. So where can people find you? You mentioned, I'd love for you to share your podcast and Mm -hmm. um, you know, wherever else you want to share links to the people can find you, follow you, check out your published research soon, all that stuff.
1: Sure. Um, yeah. Our podcast I work on with Corinne Malcolm and Hillary Allen is called Trust Society. Um, that's on any of the platforms that you listen to podcasts. Um, and I'm normally just, I don't do a ton of social media. You can find me easiest on Instagram and it's just my first and last name or it's at run with keel, which is something I created when I was like 19. It's kind of ghetto. It's like run with keel Okay. Um, with a D. <laughs> and I've just never changed it because I think it's hilarious. So people think it's run wild keel. And I feel like I just let them think that because it's a lot more appropriate, but.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Um, Well, we definitely would love to have you back when you have some, your published uh, literature results to go over. We'd love to dive into that with you. I'm sure the listeners would be intrigued by that. So we'll Mm -hmm. have to get you back on here in the future. So thank you again so much for joining us. No problem. Yeah, thanks for having me. To stay up to date with the Nutritional Revolution recent activities, follow Nutritional Revolution on Instagram and Facebook and sign up to receive the Nutritional Revolution newsletters on the Nutritional Revolution website. If you guys enjoyed today's content, please hit subscribe below to stay up to date on the latest Nutritional Revolution posts. Have a healthy day.